respectfully. Our Father and our God, we thank You for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank You that someone brought the Gospel to us. We thank You, Holy Spirit, that You opened our hearts to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. We thank You, Father, that You effectually called us. We thank You, Lord Jesus, that You redeemed us. We thank You that You have done all this for us. Now we know that, Lord Jesus, You who reign in heaven, the King of kings, Lord of lords, has given us a commission to preach the gospel to every creature. And we pray, Lord, that You be pleased to help us to do that. We, we fear that we omit our responsibility all too often. We ask that You would stir us up that we may tell others of the beauty and the glory of our Lord. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. We, um, I know that you're, we're studying together and I missed it two weeks ago, the book by J.I. Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, which is a superb book. And Pastor Dale told me, all he said was, I'm going to be at a wedding, so I want you to teach. I said, what do you want me to teach? He says, anything you want. He said, if you want to continue on with that book, that's fine. But I, I determined I would not do that because I didn't, and I, I didn't, he wasn't here for the first lesson and I didn't know exactly where to go. So I've decided to do something on the theme of evangelism, and that is to talk to you about the well-meant offer of the gospel. Now, I want you to turn to uh, Romans chapter 3, if you would, to begin. And what I want to do is to begin to talk about um, the, um, the gospel. I want to tell you that I never assume, Lord helping me, that's probably not entirely true, but at least I want it to be true, I never assume that everyone to whom I'm speaking is a Christian. And therefore, I always want to highlight the gospel and to call people to believe the gospel. Uh, for the Lord knows hearts and, and I do not. But So I want to begin by defining the gospel. We'll do this very briefly, um, but I hope adequately. Romans chapter 3, starting at verse uh, 9, the Apostle Paul has already declared that w- the wrath of God is on, is against sinners and that we can't be justified by works, he says, what then? Are we better than they? Meaning we Jews, are we better than the um, Gentiles? No, he says, uh, for we've all, as we previously charged, both Jews and Greeks, they're all under sin, as it is written. And then he, what he does, as most of you know, from verse 10 down through verse 18, he quotes Old Testament Scriptures, saying, I'm not teaching you anything new. This is exactly what has been taught in the Old Testament. And I want you to understand that the Old Testament made it plain that we are sinners. So he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. That means you and me. We've None of us have done good. None of us. Not a single one of us. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you know that's true. If you're not a Christian, you probably are arguing with yourself and say, well, I've done a few good things. No, you haven't. Not in the sight of God. There's none, 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 none. Then he says their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. 
whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And of course, the way to determine whether one is a Christian or not is to find out whether or not he agrees with this. If he, if he argues with it, you know he needs, he needs to understand the bad news. And then Paul concludes with his own words, as guided by the Spirit. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's the bad news. And one has to understand and know and accept the bad news before he can ever understand and delight in the good news. But there is good news. And that good news is summarized in verses 21 through 26 of Romans chapter 3. Uh, Lloyd-Jones calls this the very heart of the Bible, the very center of the Bible. When the Apostle Paul says, But now the righteousness of God. We have no righteousness, but God does. The righteousness of God from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Paul's saying this is nothing new. The law taught it. The prophets taught it. The Old Testament taught it. I'm not telling you anything that hasn't already been revealed. And a little parenthesis here. That means when we read the Old Testament, we need to understand that the gospel is there. It's strongly there. So Paul goes on. Even the righteousness of God, not our righteousness, but God's righteousness, through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. And that's the only ones that will ever be accepted by God because they need His righteousness. And then he goes on to say, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you didn't get my point in the previous verses, I'm going to tell you right now. You've sinned. You fall short of God's glory. Being justified, that is declared righteous by God, being justified freely by His grace, through the redemption, that is the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set, whom God set forth as a propitiation. That wonderful biblical word. I, when I, when a new translation comes out, I always want to know how they, what they say at Romans 3.25. If they don't word the word propitiation, I say I don't want to read it anymore. Uh, I think there's one translation that says sacrifice of atonement, which is a bad it just doesn't get the heart of the message. Propitiation is a word that Paul borrowed from pagan worship when the pagans had to propitiate their gods to make them pleased with them and uh, to satisfy them, to satisfy their anger. Well, here, God is the one who is propitiating Himself by the blood of His own Son. That is, satisfying His own justice, His own wrath, his own anger, by His blood, that's the blood of Jesus, through faith to demonstrate the righteousness, to demonstrate His righteousness. God says He's very jealous of His righteousness. And so He wants the world to know that He's a righteous God and His righteousness is seen in that He punishes sin in the death of His Son so that He Himself is satisfied in His justice 
because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Sins such as the sin of David against Uriah and Bathsheba, who to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And here's the good news, isn't it? He is just and the justifier. God remains absolutely righteous while he justifies wicked sinners like us who are described in verses 9 through 20. So, here's the good news. Um, the good news is a righteousness that's apart from the law, a righteousness based on Christ's propitiation, a righteousness that demonstrates that God is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. And it's a righteousness that comes by faith apart from works, as Romans 4, 5 says, uh, when Paul says in that verse, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly as faith is accounted for righteousness. Now, I'm convinced that the majority of you here believe that. But, as I said, I never want to assume anything. So I've attempted in short order to define the gospel. Now, to our next point, the free offer. The free offer of the gospel is the preaching of the gospel to all the nations. And I've given three references up to there. Remember, Jesus said, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Just before Jesus ascended to heaven, he said, all he says, but you shall receive power when the Spirit of God comes upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the end of the earth. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And in Luke, the Luke passage, it says that remission of sins is to be preached. So, that settles the matter, doesn't it? Jesus said, preach? To whom? All the nations? What? The Gospel. Well, sadly, it does not. Because... <clears throat> The sincere, well-meant offer the gospel. I'm going to define this by showing there are three kinds of Calvinists. And much of the material is taken from Sam Waldron's book entitled The Crux of the Free Offer. It's available on Kindle, um, and I assume it's available on hardback as well. But um, the fact is that all, not all Calvinists, and, and I haven't defined Calvinism, have I? Oh my, that's awful. I didn't plan to do that. Well, I define it with Jonah 2.9. You know Jonah 2.9? Salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end. That's my Calvinism. That's your Calvinism. Salvation, the whole bucket of it, is of the Lord. So that means we who are sinners, depraved, in every part of our being, were chosen by God in eternity past. He sent His Son, as we read in Romans 3, to be our, to be our redemption, our propitiation. Then He sent the Spirit of God to call us. And then He keeps us so that we persevere in the faith. So, um, oh, i got to point it this way out that. There are three kinds of Calvinists. And, and this has to do with the offer of the Gospel. There are those who, um, who deny that God neither commands nor desires saving faith from the non-elect. 
what this means in practice is that you only preach the gospel to those who are elect. How do you know if they're elect? Well, you don't. And so they have to look for all kinds of signs and indications that indeed they are elect. And then if they are convinced they are elect, then they can share the gospel with them. Well, you say, does anybody really believe that? Yeah, there have been those who believe that. Representatives of John Hussey, who was a mentor for John Gill. And by the way, John Gill was a predecessor of Spurgeon. Spurgeon didn't believe that. He didn't believe it at all. <laughs> and that's why he was called an Armenian when he started preaching at the tabernacle. He was accused of that, uh, of that heresy because, uh, well, heresy, error, uh, <clears throat> because he preached a free offer, you see. And then some strict Baptist churches. There are some. I don't know how many there are. I think their numbers are quite small. And you can understand why. If you only preach the gospel to the elect, you don't know who the elect are, then, then consequently you get smaller and smaller and smaller as a result of that, which is a good thing, actually. And then there's a second kind of Calvinist that assert that God commands saving faith. But he does not desire faith in the non Elect. Representatives here included, include Herman Hoeksema, David Inglesma. Uh, I've read Inglesma's book a number of years ago. I can't find it in my library. I probably gave it away because I didn't like it that well. So he's one. Uh, and then the Protestant Reformed Church. The Protestant Reformed Church separated from the Christian Reformed Church over the issue of the free offer in 1924. Now, the Christian Reformed Church today has not maintained a good Orthodox position, but in 1924 they did. And they believed in the well-meant offer of the gospel. By the way, as a side note, when I was preaching at a Redeeming Grace church plant in Janesville, there was a man who attended faithfully every week, and he told me after a number of months, he was one who had been a member of the Protestant Reformed Church. He said it was the first time he ever heard a preacher give a call to repent and believe and to come to Christ. He'd never heard that before. And you see, they do believe that God commands saving faith, but at least in his particular church, under that particular ministry, the command was never given. So in practice, they're almost like the first kind, although they're not. We, we recognize the difference. Then there's a third kind of Calvinist, and that is those who believe that God both commands saving faith and desires saving faith from the non-elect. Representatives of the Morrow Man. Are you familiar with the Morrow controversy in the 1700s? I don't have time to tell you about it. But it is a, it is, is the, the Morrow Man, the, there's a book, and Thomas Boston actually wrote notes on it. The, um, I, not, I can't go into that. But you can, you can research that on your own this afternoon or the rest of your lives, whatever works for you. Andrew Fuller. I love Andrew Fuller. I've, I've, I did a, I, I've done a biographical sketch of Andrew Fuller. I have his complete works. It's the largest volume that Banner of Truth ever published. I mean large. It's thick. And they've never published a bigger book than Andrew Fuller's complete works. Uh, and then there's John Murray. John Murray is a Presbyterian from... Uh, and it's also the majority report of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church is also holds this. 
And then I put up there the Reformed Baptist Network in the pamphlet Statement of Core Values. Uh, we, as a network, the Reformed Baptist Network has said we believe in the well-meant offer of the gospel. And we do. And we've published it as, as that is our one of our Statement of Values. Okay. Um, well, let me read from that. I have it here. And I, I'd just like to read what was printed. Um, there were some five men that have their names on this. One of them didn't write anything, but he approved of it. That was me. The sincere offer. <clears throat> we hold unashamedly to the doctrines of grace, including God's sovereign and unconditional election of those who will be saved in Christ's definite, particular, and effectual atonement. In addition, we stand with the mainstream of historic evangelical Calvinism in affirming that according to the Scriptures, Jesus Christ and His salvation are to be preached indiscriminately and freely and sincerely extended to all in the Gospel. Since God commands and invites them to come to Christ and promises to save any and all who do, we do not follow the hyper-Calvinists who, on the basis of doctrines of sovereign and particular grace, rejects human responsibility and the sincere and free offer of the Gospel in Christ. And it goes on from there. But uh, that's, that's a summary of what uh, is in the Reformed Baptist Network's core value pamphlet. Okay, now, let's... Um, you've got this down, right? We know where we are. I'm not going to deal with one and two. What I want to do is just show the biblical support for the sincere offer of the Gospel. Interesting, Dr. Waldron uses... Um, and I found this interesting a number of years ago, actually, when I read his pamphlet. I had to think about it to whether or not this was a, a good place to start. And I think it is. And that is, he uses John chapter 5, verse 34. You might want to turn to that passage because we're going to look not only at this verse, but also it's in its context. Uh, we'll look at this verse. Now, in fact, but let's look at the context first. If you go back to verse 16 of John chapter 5, we read this. Our Lord is speaking. Well, He will be speaking here shortly. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill Him because He had done these things on the Sabbath. And you know that history. I'm not going to go into it. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, that is their interpretation in a legalistic way of what the Sabbath rules were, which were not biblical, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, and he goes on at that point. But what I want you to notice specifically here is that this entire discourse now is given to those who wanted to kill him. And we know that they did kill him eventually at the cross. And so he's ministering to these people who are dead set against him, who hate him, who want to kill him. 
And then he says at verse 34, the verse, part of the verse that I have up here on the screen for you, he makes this amazing statement. He says, yet I do not receive the testimony from men. They're questioning him as to, he's testifying about himself. But he says, no, there's really a fourfold witness. The witness of the Spirit, the witness of the miracles, the witness of my Father, and so forth. And then he says, yet I do not receive the testimony from man, but I say these things. Why is he saying these things to people who want to kill him? Well, he says, I say these things that you may be saved. Now, to me, that's very clear that Jesus did not agree with John Gill. Or with David Ingsman. He's saying, I'm saying these things to you that you may, I want you to be saved. That's why I'm telling you all this. I want you to be saved. So, he gives this extensive teaching about who he is and why he came so that, um, so that they would, so that they would be saved. Now, there's more biblical support in a broader theological sense as to the sincere offer of the gospel. And so now we're, we're talking about in, in, in the broadest sense. Now, the, the, turn to Matthew chapter 5. And um, it's, a, it's an important passage for this, um, for this understanding. Matthew chapter 5. And here we see Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and on the mountain making this very important statement. Uh, he said at verse, uh, what verse is it? 43. Okay, verse 43. He says this. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And by the way, the Old Testament never said that they were to hate their enemy. That was what the scribes and Pharisees taught, but it was never in the Old Testament. In fact, the Old Testament says exactly the opposite. If your enemy's ox goes astray, you're to find it and return it to him. The idea of loving your enemies is permeates the law. But that's the way the teachers of Jesus' day interpreted it. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies, Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. And then notice what does it say next. He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do you not do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do that? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, <laughs> that's why we love our enemies, isn't it? That's why we pray for our enemies. That's why we love our enemies. Because God loves His enemies. Ah, but you are all theologically knowledgeable here today and immediately what question comes to your mind? I know the question that comes to your mind. 
But doesn't God hate the wicked? Psalm 5, Psalm 7, He does. How do you put those things together? Well, I don't have time to do that today, but you can go online and listen to R.C. Sproul. He has a... um, He has a series on the love of God. And in that series, he'll explain to you that that there are three different kinds of love. The first two are really, in my mind, the same. But he makes the distinction, and he's smarter than I, so we'll make the distinction. He says, first of all, there is what's called a love of benevolence. And this love of benevolence expresses itself in, and I can't say this word very well, will you help me, beneficence? Did I say it right? It's close enough. And the only difference between those two things is benevolence means God's attitude towards everyone. And the second one means the expression of that attitude and giving them rain and sunshine and so forth. So what does love of benevolence mean? It means that God has a good will toward all men. And that good will toward all men is expressed in as what we've read here in Matthew 5. And so he has this general love that's expressed even to his enemies, as we saw with Jesus in John chapter 5. And then there is a third kind of love, which, as I say, I think the first two are so close that we, that they're just, you tie them together. But the third kind of love is a love of, of complacency. Ah, but the problem with the word complacency is what? What does complacency mean now, today, in the English language? It means that you're passive, whatever will be, will it be, but it doesn't mean that historically. In fact, and I didn't check this out, but I take R.C. Sproul's word for it, that if you look the word up, you'll find that the word complacency originally meant delight. And let's use the word delight. So God also has a love of delight. And that love of delight is reserved for those whom he placed his love on before the foundation of the world. But both are true. There is this love of benevolence, as is evidenced by the fact that he shows... I mean, look at the kind... Did you see it yesterday? Were you outside yesterday at all? Have you seen a more beautiful day in Rockford than what you saw yesterday? There wasn't a cloud in the sky. And and guess what? Did you know that there were wicked men who were doing wicked things yesterday in Rockford? Did they have the same benefit from God that we had as those who believe in Jesus Christ? Why is that? Because He loves them with His love of benevolence. Does He delight in them? No, He hates them because they're wicked. And we were once the children of wrath too, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. But now we're no longer in that way. So, you see, that's, uh, that's biblical support then. Would it not be then logical to think that God's love of benevolence includes His desire that men believe? Yes. I'm answering it for you if you don't agree with me. We'll have spirited discussion yet today. <laughs> yes, 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 certainly so. Well then... Another theological um, argument is God's sincere desire is to give some spiritual blessings to people. And this is important because in the Old Testament, you know that the Old Covenant people were very different from the New Covenant people. What was the difference? Well, the difference was 
they didn't have a heart for God. They were the covenant people of God, but they didn't have the heart for God. Whereas everyone in the new covenant is not only in the covenant, but is given the heart to love God and to serve Him. And that's true of every one of you who is in Jesus Christ. I don't, I don't, I wouldn't preach to you like your old covenant people today and say, you know what, if you don't do what's right, God is going to damn you forever. No, 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 no. You're in the new covenant. God is going to preserve you and keep you forever. And you see. But even in the old covenant, we read this. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments that it might be well with them and with their children forever. And I, I don't believe I have time to um, look up the rest, rest, rest of these verses, but, but they all express the same kind of thing. So we have this... Um, um, we have the um, page four. I should be on page two. It's here someplace. Oh well, we'll figure it out. But but we have other uh, biblical support as as well on on this matter. There we go. And then there's further biblical support in this way. That is Christ's sincere desire for Israel's spiritual good. And you all know this. Remember when Jesus was outside of Jerusalem, how he sobbed. And that's what the, the Greek term that's used there is literally mean he sobbed over the city. He just didn't weep. He sobbed. Why did he sob over this city? Well, we read, um, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And the same thing in Luke 19, 41 and 42. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you especially in your day, the things that made for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. So our Lord desired that his people would be saved. Remember what Paul said in, in Romans 9? He said, I wish I could be accursed if I could just win my people. He had that same heart. He wanted them. He wanted them to be saved. Um, but then there's also another broader theological argument. And that is that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 33 or 18, for I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. 33.11, say to them, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? And if you look at the beginning of that chapter, it makes it clear that the non-elect are those who refuse. Yet the Lord takes no pleasure in their death, as the Scripture says. So, um, and then there's one more broader theological argument, I think, which is important. Um, the call is given to those who do not come. And Proverbs, I, I just selected three of the references that could be used. Proverbs 8, 4, To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. Isaiah 66, 4, So I will choose their delusions, and bring their fears on them. 
Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear, but they did evil before my eyes and chose that which I do not delight. And there's our word delight. No love of complacency. But there is a love of benevolence in our God. He doesn't delight. can't delight. But yet there is this general love of benevolence. And then Jeremiah 35:17. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring on Judah and on all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the doom that I have pronounced against them because I've spoken to them, but they have not heard. I've called to them, but they have not answered. When people say, well, God loves me, he'll never condemn me. No, no. A love of benevolence does not mean a person is going to be saved. He can be condemned forever. Just because he enjoys the sunshine and the rain, God must delight in him. And that delight only comes in Christ, as we saw in Romans 3, 21 through 26. And then, I guess, God's earnest desire for the salvation of those who reject him, Romans 10, 21. But the Israeli says, all day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And that's a quotation from Isaiah 65, 2. It's figurative, certainly. God doesn't have hands. We understand that. It's figurative language. But clearly it expresses the desire of the salvation for the non-elect. And then, finally, God's universal goodness to His creation, which we've already talked about, really. The Lord is good to all and His tender mercies over all His works. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. And then verses 14 to 16, The Lord upholds all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look expectantly to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. We have a God who loves His creation. He really does. And He loves men. All men. And therefore I say, why should it be such a strange thing to think that He desires with this love of benevolence that men be saved. In fact, we read in Ezekiel, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He does judge them. He will judge them. They have hated him. They will receive that judgment. But he takes no pleasure in it. Now, those of you who are theologically astute have all kinds of questions, which I'm not going to answer this morning. But I'll give you directions at the end of this lecture as to where you can go to find your answers, okay? Applications. <clears throat> what, do we, what, what applications can we make from this teaching? Well, first, the teaching that God only says that He hates the non-elect exposes hyper-Calvinistic thinking. And you may hear this from time to time. There will be people who say, God that they only say. Now, that's the important word. That they, we, we, yes, every preacher is going to have to say, God hates those who are sinners. Because the Bible says that. But to say that God only hates sinners, that really exposes hyper-Calvinism. When there is no indication whatsoever given that, that God has a love for all men and desires that all men be saved. Secondly, this means that we need not be shy in telling everyone that God wants them to be saved. 
We don't have to say, I don't know whether God wants you to be saved or not, because I don't know whether you're elect or not. Of course you don't know, and they don't know, and nobody knows except God. But He he wants them. He takes no pleasure in their death. So we need not be shy in saying, God wants you to be saved. Believe. Come. Repent. Plead with them to repent. If you don't believe, you'll be damned forever. Yes, you'll lose your soul in hell, but God takes no pleasure in that. So, that's the second application. Third, this destroys the idea that we may be more desirous of salvation of men than God is. I think this is, this is an argument of the Arminians against us. They say, well, you know, you, you, you who believe in unconditional election, the sovereignty of God, which we do, and next week, I'm sure Pastor Dale will be talking because that's the first chapter in the Packers book. Excellent chapter about the sovereignty of God and salvation. No one is saved unless God chooses. God is sovereign. He's the one who does it. Amen, amen. Glory be to God. That's true. But the Arminian will say, well, listen, you Calvinists, you, 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 you say, and this is what they throw at us, you, you say that God has chosen, so he obviously doesn't love these people because he doesn't love these people. He doesn't want them to be saved. But you want them to be saved, so you have a greater heart for them than God does. I won't say what I'm thinking because I grew up on a farm. But I will say this. That's hogwash. No. We don't have a greater desire than God. We can't have a greater desire than God. And a fourth application. This also helps the doubting believer who struggles with assurance. And, and I say this because I'm one who, when I came to understand the Reformed faith and the doctrines of grace, I struggled because I was taught wrongly from my youth, uh, clear until I was 18 years of age. And when I understood that God chose me, if I was going to be saved, I didn't choose God, because I was always taught that I was a Christian because I chose Christ. And I did choose it, but I was resting my assurance on my choice. And once I understood that was wrong, I, I doubted my salvation. Now, did God really choose me or not? And uh, seven years after I learned that truth, I came to a sweet assurance. But it took seven years. And I don't want anyone else to have to go seven years of doubting, actually. But, um, but, but y- you, you know. Do you believe on Christ? Do you know that God wants you to be saved? Well, if you know that, that is part of the assurance that you may have that you belong to Christ. Now, how much time do I got? Six minutes. That's good. What about our confession of faith? Does our confession of faith have anything in it that would indicate that there is a sincere offer of the gospel? Well-meant offer of the gospel. Yes, it does. Not amazed at that, are you? Chapter 7, paragraph 2, Moreover, man having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. And this is my underline and my bold. It's not in the confession. I did that. Wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ. That's what our confession says. Requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those who are ordained unto eternal life as Holy Spirit and make them willing and able to believe. And then chapter 14, paragraph 3, this faith, although it be different in in different stages, and this is talking about saving faith in chapter 14, 
and may be weak or strong, yet it is in the least degree of it different in the kind or nature of it as is all other saving grace from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. Our confession recognizes common grace. And this is the big argument. Is there such a thing as common grace? And the Protestant Reformed Church says, no. There's no such thing as common grace. There's only special grace. Ah, but our confession says something different. And I think, I hope that I've demonstrated the Bible teaches that. And therefore, though it may be at times assailed and weakened, yet it gets the victory, growing up in many to the attainment of full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and finisher of faith. So, this is not contrary to our confession of faith. It is in accord with our London Baptist Confession of Faith. On, on uh, paragraph um, 7, uh, paragraph 2, there are several scriptures given, but uh, uh, one that's given is John 3.16. Isn't that interesting? Any of you ever heard of John 3.16? <laughs> For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And I think you have. I see the smiles. And so... Um, I want to summarize by giving a, um, a quotation from Sam Waldron. And the, I don't have this on the screen, so I think this is my last one that's up there. Sam Waldron concludes this way. He says, The clear implication of this is to confirm the idea that the free offer of the gospel is a well-meant offer. If temporary faith is a common grace from God, so must also be the free offer of the gospel, which is the instrument of such common grace. Maybe I do have another slide. Ah, I do. Summary statements. Common grace is given to temporary believers. Secondly, the common grace spoken of here has specific reference to the temporary faith of temporary believers. Thirdly, since it is called grace, it is clear that the 1689 is willing to see the concept of grace exercised to the non-elect. Fourthly, the idea that grace is limited only to saving grace is not the predominant position of our Baptist forefathers. Beakey and Jones in their book, A Puritan Theology, say that Roland Ward is correct, that most 17th century Reformed theologians understood grace in a more general sense than simply equating it with redemptive favor. Now, there are some questions that arise out of this that I'm not going to answer because I don't have time and I'm not sure I'm smart enough to do it, although I have opinions. How does this fit in with the doctrine of simplicity and impassibility? I'm glad you asked. And here's what I suggest you do. You can get Waldron's book and he addresses those two things or... You can um, get uh, R.L. Dabney's essay, God's Indiscriminate Proposals of Mercy, Volume 1, starting at page 282. If you have Dabney's three-volume work, you can read that. I've got one minute. Any questions? Any questions? I would just say this. Yeah, I, I, I did this because I think this helps us understand the the desire that we need to have to share the gospel with unbelievers. And, I, and I, as I said it, I thought how, how utterly, how much I failed in doing this. Um, 
And I wish to God to forgive me and help me to be more diligent in making sure unbelievers know the gospel. Good. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that You not only redeemed us, but You desired our redemption in Your benevolent love. But we thank You most of all for Your love of complacency, that You delighted in us even before the foundation of the world. Otherwise, we know we never would have been saved. Bless, we pray. Help us. Forgive us where we often fail in our omission of sharing the gospel and praying the gospel with our friends and neighbors who are yet outside of Christ. We pray, Lord, that You be pleased to help us to preach the gospel faithfully for Your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.